Welcome to TVN's Praise Podcast, hosted by Matt and Lori Crouch, where you will hear interviews with some of your favorite Bible teachers, pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. On today's episode, Matt and Lori Crouch host New York Times bestselling author Bishop T.D. Jakes. Listen as they discuss the current racial tensions in America and what the church should be doing in the quest to bring healing and racial reconciliation. Bishop, um, you just said a statement that you almost can't hardly say anything that doesn't upset someone somewhere. What, what expound on that? Bring the audience into our conversation. It, it is, it is uh, the absence of absoluteness. We live in a world of such ambiguity. We are fed through two or three different streams of media that form our truth. Hmm. And so you can pick the truth you want to hear and then argue with everybody who feels something differently. Yeah. When you and I grew up, it wasn't like that. You had the six o'clock news with Walter Cronkite. Everybody was eating the same food yeah. and we had less division. Now the ratings uh, control, the more argumentative, the, the more spiteful, the more different approach that they take in feeding their demographic, uh, the higher the ratings. Would it be fair to say that television and communications in general are now narrow casting? They, we used to broadcast, right. now we narrow cast. That's so true. And so you were just saying that you have to talk to Ebony Magazine mm-hmm. and Fox News and CNN News. Yes. And you have, to, you have to go through all of these different vehicles, including TBN, mm-hmm. and it almost feels like you need to say the right thing to the right audience at the right time. Yeah. Okay, let's throw that out the window. <laughs> let's just say the right thing. Okay. So let's agree today... It. That we're not going to try to, well, let's broadcast again, okay? okay? Yeah, let's broadcast. Okay. okay, the days of my daddy and mom sitting with Evie Hill, they were broadcasting. Mm-hmm. They did that. The day that you and the, the Jakes family and the Crouch family got united, not because of our skin color, no. because you had revelation that my dad needed. God placed you on a stage for seven minutes. Yeah. And my dad happened to be writing a book at the time, needed some revelation. You were saying it right. on TBN for that seven minutes. Yeah. And that was decades ago, and, and we're still friends. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I love it. we didn't Jesus. get connected by anything but revelation. But Absolutely. Now, this is going to be the fun part. And remember, my dad used to say this. <laughs> A little controversy. <laughs> a little controversy doesn't hurt, you know. So let's go ahead and just drop a bomb here he for loves a second. That kind of stuff. Okay. I, I'm going to sit and giggle. I seriously because because we we're gonna we're gonna jump off. We're gonna jump tracks a little bit. You know, I said to you, Bishop, is it fair to say that uh, Jesus is the answer for this issue? The racial issue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you want me to? Tell the story. Do you want to jump? Oh, in? I, I, and I said okay. no. It's not. It's not an. It's it's an incomplete statement because yes, if the world got saved and everybody really got truly saved and they had a heart changing experience, and racism would not be a problem. 
But the reality is the black community and minority communities cannot wait and poor white communities cannot wait for the world to get saved to have justice. Got it. The boys in prison can't wait who are on death row. The young people, the young mothers who are incarcerated in prison cannot wait on conversion to hit the judicial system mm -hmm. in order for them to have justice. And the whole premise of the United States and our Constitution should afford us not to have to have a religious experience to have shared values yeah. and equal rights, irrespective to our belief system. So let me make sure I understand something, because <laughs> this is a super interesting point. First of all, if you, you know, are not from this part of, well, I was about to say this part of the planet. If you're from another, another solar system and I'm introducing you to T.D. Jakes, he happens to be a bishop, okay? <laughs> Pastor's probably the most influential church, one of them in America and the world. Okay, so you're, you're supposed to sit on TBN and just say Jesus is the answer. That's yeah, what, no. Or sing it. You know, no. you could sing Andre. Andre wrote the song. Now, yeah. come on, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But, but what we're really going to do here is we're going to have you speak to this issue maybe a little bit uniquely from a different angle. And this is what I think we're going to do. You, you just, if Jesus is the answer... And that is a true statement. Yes. In this circumstance, it's an incomplete one right. because not everyone that's controlling the narrative of what's happening in the United States and the world are believers. Absolutely. Okay? They disregard God. They Absolutely. disregard the things of faith. And so what you're saying, and I think aptly, and this is a, you, you know, you're going to think you're on MSNBC, because you're having a, a secular discussion in right. regard to this. Right. I like the idea that the bishop is stepping in mm -hmm. to the outside the walls of the church mm -hmm. and that you want to say a few things. So, have at it. First of all, I think it's a misnomer to think that the early church didn't have racial problems. They absolutely did. Let's just talk about that for a second. And there was a great deal of bias built into the early apostles and Peter and, and his unwillingness to open up to the Gentiles. And it took a revelation from God for him to do that in the middle of his ministry. There was dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews back to the time of Jesus when the woman at the well said, we have no dealing, your people have no dealings with my people. And the whole reason that Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan is to force the Jewish lawyer to accept a group of people that were alienated from the sociological right. constructs of what went on in Israel. So, so this is not new. This is a this is goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. We have been fighting about something ever since humanity began. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so religion is not exempt from it. And also, I must admit that religion is complicit in the black and white aspect of it. There are many disputes all over the world, but when it comes to the black and white issue in America, religion has been complicit and doesn't like to admit that our missionaries were our masters. Mm. So the same people who taught us about Jesus beat us and cut our foot off and hung us and castrated us. So that creates a very odd scenario. When you look at the slave Bibles, the early slave Bibles in their own museums up at the uh, National Institute for African Americans in New York, 
uh, redacted out of the Bible was the stories about Moses. Redacted out of the Bible were the stories about neither bond nor free, all one in Christ Jesus. They gave the slaves the partial Bibles with things like slave obey your masters. That's a part of the story. When you look at the fact that Southern Baptist Church just in the last 10 years apologized for their role in slavery. When you look at the fact that the early slave castles in like Elmina in Ghana have churches above them and the women were being raped beneath them. Mm. Uh, religion can't just walk away and say, we don't have an obligation or responsibility to be involved in correcting this problem because we influence even secular ideas about culture and morality in the most interesting way. But I think a deeper point is this. Okay. We're not really just talking about the hearts of men. We're talking about systems that were built sometimes uh, intentionally and unintentionally that were, were biased. It's like opening up a restaurant and you have all your favorite foods. And then you have a customer base who maybe likes something different than, than, than you like. When it comes into privilege, when you design the country and you design the system and you design the criminal justice system and you design those sorts of things, you design them uh, in, a, in such a way that the system is, is geared against us. White privilege isn't always about white evil. It's, it's as simple as my iPhone. I use this illustration. My iPhone has a uh, image recognizer. The only problem is it has a hard time recognizing me. Because all of the people in Silicon Valley that designed the phone were young white guys. Hmm. So the phone recognizes, and you can Google this and find this out. The phone does not recognize minorities, not only blacks, but browns and Asians. It doesn't recognize the face as easily because the system is designed for white people. Okay, take that from the phone, which is, has no heart, has no emotions, has no prejudice, just programming, and put it over in the criminal justice system. And you start to seeing the inequities where we commit the same crime. I'm seven times more likely to be incarcerated than you. There's an economic factor in there, too. It's not just racial. It's also court-appointed attorneys. It's also uh, bias in the system between the police officers and the DA and how our political system has worked. Both Democrats and Republicans have made office over, if you think back over the last 20 years, on being tough on crime all the way back to the Reagan era on up, the Clintons, everybody has used it. I'm going to be tough on crime. They got elected. Well, tough on crime was code for tough on us. Mm. And so when you look at that kind of situation, it's not as simple as the Romans rogue and giving them John 3.16 and the world's going to sing Kumbaya and we're all going to wash each other's feet and we're going to be fine. I don't need my feet washed. I need equal housing, equal jobs. Right, right. I wash my own feet. <laughs> you know, I don't need all of that stuff going on. I, I need, I need a, a way, a pathway out of a criminal justice system mm -hmm. that has not corrected itself. Mm -hmm. The laws have changed and people are still in jail for things that are no longer illegal. Mm -hmm. Some people are in jail for years waiting on trials through plea bargain agreements. Those sorts of things that we know to be wrong, that both Democrats and Republicans agree to be wrong, yet we have not been reticent or readily uh, focused on fixing them because we don't fix well things that don't affect us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you explained that to me in the pre-show we did back in the green room uh, <laughs> where you were explaining that white people don't have to know much about African-American people 
but African-American people have to go through white people uh, for a lot of things. Explain what you were telling me back. Well, some of the best-selling books on the Times list right now and elsewhere are books on black history because Black Lives Matter did a service to the country in that it made whites realize that maybe they didn't know the whole story. So our books are selling really well. And, uh, and, and even though I didn't write any of them on that subject, uh, thank you for that. The point being that you can get a PhD and have the option not to go into South Dallas, learn anything about black culture, go to a black church, read a black magazine, read a black book, and may not have a black professor all the way to a PhD program. I can't get a GED without understanding you. Mm. I can't go through school. I have to go to through whites to go to the bank. I have to go through whites when I'm getting ready to buy a car. I have to go through whites when I was in the early school system. I went to school with 95% white kids. I, I have to learn how to like your music. I have to learn how to dress the way you dress. I have always had to assimilate, not just integrate. I had to assimilate in order to be appropriate in certain settings. So there's a disadvantage when you write the books you read then your truth about what happened in this country is based. People never write a book where they're not the hero. Mm. <laughs> you know, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you write a book that made you look bad? So, so anytime you write the books you read, whether you're black, white, or brown, you're always a hero. It's like talking to a married couple. <laughs> when you talk to her, she's always good. You know, he's crazy. Right. Yeah, she's right. <laughs> I may have a few faults, but he's a dude. And you talk to him and he's, you know, everybody has a story that they tell themselves to be true that may not be true. And that's okay. That's human until your story affects my life. Mm. When your story affects my job and it affects me being able to be there for my children, when your story says, this is America. Oprah Winfrey's doing good. T.D. Jakes is doing good. And you can name four or five people who are doing good. Never, realize, never realizing the fact that you can name us out of 40 million people right. says we're not doing that good. Mm. Try to name all the white people that are doing well. Yeah. Mm. You can't do that. The very fact that you have a quick list of people that you quote unquote think are doing well uh, is a sign that our system doesn't work. I'm not so worried about the hearts. I'll leave that for Sunday morning. I think God can change the hearts. I'm worried about the system, legislation changing in the way we educate, changing. Uh, I don't think that all cops are bad. I think most of them are very good. I don't want to live in a world that doesn't have police officers. I call them too much. I will call them <laughs> in the name of the Lord and pray for you while they come. So I don't have while anything against police officers. <laughs> but like ministers, like priests, like anybody else, they go rogue. And when they go rogue, they are protected mm -hmm. through immunities that create illegal immunities that create unfair biases. Their records are withheld. They get to see the evidence before they fill out the reports. In the last three black murders, they have we have found the reports that they found to be contradictory to the evidence that was submitted. Mm -hmm. So you can't count on them for truth. And when they are bad, we do the same thing that the Catholics did with bad priests. We move them to different precincts like they move them to different parishes because there is no federal regulation that mandates that their records be made and exposed to everybody. Hmm. Okay, we're we're not worried about whether or not we're narrow casting to an audience right now. I'm okay. sitting with you and I am in support of what you're saying. We talked about this in the back. Right. 
So I'm with you in what you're saying. I'm not sitting here shocked by anything you've said. You explained something to me that I think um, our audience would find interesting. I found it interesting. You explained to me in the back that the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. is not a church organization. It's no. a secular organization, organization. And it has a kind of a very progressive mm -hmm. base to it. Mm -hmm. Some evangelical Christians, even let's say white evangelical mm -hmm. Christians, that can't even say the word Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. without irritation, mm -hmm. might be sensing the very progressive attitude and we need to, well, first of all, explain that. Just let's start there and then I have a follow-up question. First of all, they have to understand there's a difference between the organization itself uh, and the movement. The movement kind of took over the organization. It swallowed up the organization. I mean, it's in London. It's in Nigeria. It went all over the world. South Africa, they were running around saying Black Lives Matter. That's not one organization controlling that. The slogan overrode the organization. So it transcends the organization. But, but some people have dug back into the organization and realized that the organization is extremely liberal. It is very secular. Uh, uh, rights for transgenders, LGBTQ, so forth and so on, some things that Christians would not agree with, uh, mixed in with uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and the issues that, that hopefully most Christians would really care about, the abuse, the criminal justice system, the killing and all, so forth and so on. So what happens in this country is once we find a reason to disassociate ourselves, mm -hmm. we use that. So it, it could be what is being said is, so we're not going to have anything to do with Black Lives Matter because they're liberal and they're against what the Bible stands for. And we're not going to do it. What ought to be said is, if you feel that way, let's start a right-wing counterpart that cares about the same issues that embraces Christian values so that people have an option. So I think I'm nominating you to start that movement right here, right now. You could say black love matters. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately, because Christians are having a little bit of a pushback, mm -hmm. even African-American Christians, right. Christians in general, about just endorsing a secular organization that has some things that are very counterintuitive, but they have some good things in there. So you kind of want to embrace this part of it and that part of it, but you have to wholesale reject that part of it. It's like a, a, a platform that you can't agree with totally. Right, right. So a Christian version of Black Lives Matter would be better not having one, wouldn't it? Would it would be better than the church turning its head yet again and finding an excuse to ignore an issue that's right in our back door. I nominate you the leader of that. <laughs> you know what's more power? You know what would be the most powerful? is if whites would lead it. I told you in the back, the most powerful thing that I saw in all of my life, and it's really hard to talk about it without being emotional, mm. was to see the masses of white people marching in the streets saying Black Lives Matter. I literally cried. Mm. Uh, the only way I can explain to you what that feels like is up until recently, Anytime you went into main settings and you started talking about racism or criminal justice or uh, 
police brutality. Uh, you were called race baiters. We, we solve everything by calling you names. So we put a name on you, and that way we label you and you're gone. You're a race baiter. And so after years and years and years of broaching subjects that made you alienated from the people that you love in terms of loving all of humanity and, and hating being misunderstood, to see all of those white and brown and Jewish and all types of LGBTQ, everybody marching, saying Black Lives Matter, was like being a child who's been molested by your father all your life and your mother never believed you mm. and said you were a liar. And then one day she did and she fought back for you. Mm. That's what that looked like to us. That's what that meant to us. That's what that says to us because this is not a black problem. This is an American problem. Mm. We, we, we didn't write the creeds that liberty and justice for all, that all men should be created equal. We didn't write that, but we should be recipients of that. And anything that goes beneath that, if, if you don't live up to your creed, then who are you? And so it has to be dealt with as an American problem. And I think that the conversation, as uncomfortable as it is, is a conversation that I'm happy that we're having. I think the silence was more sick than the struggle to have a conversation. And I want to say to all the white pastors who have gotten on the news and said something uh, that brought them a lot of criticism to one side or the other, and they've retreated back into their silos to be safe, don't do that. Mm. Keep talking. Mm. If we don't keep talking, if we don't keep talking, reasoned men don't keep talking, then unreasonable people will take over the conversation. If we don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. So then it's left to people in the street and people with guns on both sides of the issue and people are going to be killing and shooting because we don't want to be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable. I mean, yes, you're going to be trolled and people are going to say bad things, but trolled is better than shot. Yeah. Keep talking. We can make the world better if we start talking to each other rather than allowing the news to tell us who each other is. You know, Bishop, I think that's been so hard for people, though, because it as we were talking, uh, it has been so volatile and it's like you can't say anything right as right. much as you try. Right. And it's just taken out of context. And that has been probably the worst thing. Uh, about just speaking out is that, you know, and Christians, people that call themselves Christians yes, being volatile and, and it's just been shocking, <laughs> yeah. to, shocking to me. And the Black Lives Matter words, those three words yeah. are separate from anything else. Yeah. It's Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Also, too, yeah. yes, yeah. we're all in this together. It's not... Just because you say black lives matter doesn't mean all lives don't matter. Oh, we're going to fall out and be slain. In <laughs> I've been trying to right? say that. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Black lives matter too. That's, yeah. the, that's the thing we're dealing with and we've got to move on that. And it's not because they say that their lives matter that nobody else's lives no, matter. We all matter and we all know that. We should all know. I'm telling you, we all matter. But black lives right now matter and they matter to God mm. and they matter to us. Yeah. And so the, the things that have to change and who, who said um, the other night, I think it was Rick Rigsby said that the oppressor. Well, that the, that the 
oppressor has to be the one to fix the problem, not, not the, the oppressed. oppressed. Right. It's not, it's not going to be fixed yeah. by someone that is oppressed. The oppressor must fix it. Um, you know, can, can I jump in for yes. just a second? Yes. There's a couple of things that I want to point out just to underscore what Laurie said. I think it's October. I might be wrong about the month. It's Breast Cancer Month, mm -hmm. and everybody wears pink, and everybody, even the football players wear pink, and everybody focuses on breast cancer because it is a pervasive problem that's killing millions of women, black and white, and we're trying to eradicate a breast cancer. But nobody says when you're wearing a pink shirt and saying, uh, I, I fight breast cancer, nobody says, what about Alzheimer's? Yeah. Right. You know, Alzheimer's matters too. Right. We, we have this way. Wow. Of, <laughs> that was yeah. really a good yeah. point. <laughs> you understand what yeah. I'm saying? That is really good. We, we have a way of not understanding things we really understand in a way that is playing with our own minds, when in reality, all over the world, we have been able to focus on COVID-19 right mm -hmm. now, okay? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean Ebola doesn't matter, yeah. okay? But you focus on the thing that is the most threatening in that moment, right. and the focus is there, and it is not to the chagrin or the detriment of other people, uh, it, but it is, in fact, uh, an inclusion that says... I care about you. What could be more Christian than that? You matter. Right. Okay. You, you have made an analogy that works. Okay. When you see people displaying that pink color mm -hmm. or a, an athlete has on pink shoes that football <laughs> game or whatever, it's not, you're not saying heart disease doesn't matter. Right. You know, you're just saying we need to focus on this because it's a thing. And, and guess you know, it, I guess it, it also is, you know, similar to you all live in a big cul-de-sac of houses. Everybody's house matters, but the one on fire really matters right, right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on the one on fire right now. Right. Not that the other houses don't matter. So we're that we got that clarified. Let, when we were when we were backstage, another thing that you brought out that I, I think is super important is you, I mentioned to you that I had an interview with President Museveni of Uganda. And I asked my first little question and he put his hand up kind of like that and he goes, wait a second, before we get started, I need you to know something, okay? And he had a passion, he had just written a book on it and, and he had a passion to explain to me Bishop, this is probably, uh, well, was 15 years ago, probably. And, and he had a passion to explain to me how colonialism completely screwed up uh, Africa right. from top to tail, okay? Yes. So we have to really dial the clock back to there to really start not making this a simple cooey by ya thing with a <laughs> little campfire sitting here. <laughs> and and uh, I'm not going to pull your shoes and socks off and wash them, even Thank though you. I would. I'm just not going to. Okay? I would. You needed it. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> you washed your own feet is what I heard earlier. Yes. And so basically, <laughs> until, you, until you really wind the clock back to the 1500s and the 1600s. And right. You, this really got bad then. I know a lot about that. Start that conversation because I think that's important for people to know. 
It didn't start in America. This whole uh, supremacy didn't start in America. It it started in the in in the Dutch countries, in Europe, in in colonialism, in the pursuit of new lands and new territories, and and going after the gold and the silver. When you think of a, a country like Ghana, Ghana and I am the same age. Hmm. Nigeria isn't but a couple of years older than me, mm. okay? So when you look at these countries, like these, these countries were infused on top of tribes because the value of the Europeans was on getting the gold and the silver and making the money. Slavery wasn't about racism. Slavery was about money. Slavery was about finding a way to fund this country and get it up off the ground and and get it in an agricultural society and needing more workers. And it was a business deal. And then after the agricultural went to industrial age, there was no need for slaves. And then we went from uh, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, down to Jim Crow because now you don't know what to do with me because, you know, you don't need me anymore. And, and yet you don't want me to be one of you. And so now I'm figuring I'm lost in the sauce of, of this struggle. And, and, and when you start talking about this issue, Thanks for taking it back beyond the ship because my children need to know that their heritage didn't start with a whip mm-hmm. or a noose or, or that sort of thing. They also need to know that the early stages of the police department started out in catching runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. So when you start talking about the way black people feel about the police, there's a reason we feel like that about the police. We need to understand what you brought up. I was in South Africa and I was going through the apartheid museum and there was a sign said that when the Dutch came here, we owned the land and they owned the Bible. And when the fighting was over, we owned the Bible and they owned the land. Mm. Okay. We need to come from there all the way up to my great grandmother who died when I was about 10 years old, who still bore a mark in her body as an old woman where they had branded her to say who owned her. Mm. She was born a slave. She died a free woman. And I remember her. So the people who say, that's a long time ago. I don't have anything to do with that. That's not true. Mm. I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> my my, my great-grandmother was a slave. So how do you expect from my great-grandmother to my grandmother to my father to me in, in four generations for us to be okay when we have had hundreds of years of being inbred, sold, babies snatched out our arms, prodded on slave tables, abused for hundreds of years, and then say, we gave you some welfare checks and we gave you affirmative action and you should be good. It's like molesting a child from three to 18 and then giving them $100,000 and say, you should be fine. Mm. No, what we have to do is really own this, not to make anybody guilty. Nobody can change anything about the past. I don't want to be nowhere else. I love America. This is my home. It's all I know. It's not about that. But since what happened happened, like any family who goes through, like what women have gone through with the Me Too movement, since what happened happened, let's own it and let's figure out how to make this work better now. I'm happy because we're talking. I'm happy because I'm seeing CEOs around the country who are standing up to the plate, even when the government is squeamish, and they're introducing plans and programs that are wanting to fix this problem. And I believe that this 
We think when we talk to the elected officials, we're talking to power. But when you're talking to CEOs, you're talking to the people who are empowering the elected officials. We hope you're enjoying the Praise Podcast. We'll get back to the interview soon. When you uh, speak from your position of leadership and you don't get to back away from that. You're a leader, whether you want to be or not, okay? But are there some people, even in your own community, saying, well, Bishop, for goodness sakes, you don't know what it's like to be out here working three jobs, although you probably work more like four or five jobs. You're a serial entrepreneur, and I love that about you. Um, But do you get criticized that you don't know how bad it really is? Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked me that. <laughs> that that's going to give me a good chance to tell you a story. First of all, I grew up in a raggedy house on the side of a hill with a dog named Pup. And uh, my mother killed chickens out in the backyard and feathered them and cooked them for us to eat. And we raised a garden. And my father did 10,000 things to make up one salary. So I do know what it is to stand over top of a floor heater because the rest of the house was freezing. And I do know what it is to be broke. And I thought that being rich was having a doorbell. (laughs) I thought if you had a doorbell, you were a rich person. If you had an air conditioning unit in your house, I'm not talking about a unit. I'm talking about in the window. You were rich people. I did not know what that was like. Having said that, I thought I had a fidelity and a fraternity with poor black people today until this guy cusses me out on social media. And he cusses me out really bad. And I said, and, and, and I was mad. I wanted to fire back at him and let he's black. And I would let him have it and let him know where I came from and you don't know me and da 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 da. da. And then <laughs> I kept thinking about what he said. And I realized that he was cursing at me because that's his language. Mm -hmm. And that's how he talks. And if I could get past being offended by what he said, I could hear the hurt behind what he said. Mm -hmm. That he feels left out and neglected and he thinks I'm out of touch. And then I had to grab this fight. He's right. Mm -hmm. I did grow up poor, but I never stepped over needles. There were no drug deals outside of my door. There was no shooting in my neighborhood. We were just poor, but we weren't afraid. There there weren't burnings and bombings and gangs and killings and crips and and, and bloods. And I I don't know. He's right. I don't know what it's like to be him. The humility that it takes to bring yourself down off your high horse Mm -hmm. and admit that I may not like the way you said it, but hey, I think you're right. That ability to listen Mm. starts healing. Right now, when you start saying something, we start arguing. And anytime you're arguing, you're not listening. If we listen at each other, we... I found out that his criticism was a cry for help. Mm. I found out that he didn't know how to say it in a politically correct way, but he he has no hope of being me. And he's angry as hell at me about it. And I don't have a right to get mad. Because I'm, I do have air conditioning and a doorbell and grass in my front yard. I have a right. I have a responsibility to be a voice for him. 
because I can say it without cursing. And I can say it in a language that maybe somebody will understand. And I am seeing people in the church and outside the church, corporate America, elected officials and spiritual leaders who are starting to say, ooh, I don't know what I don't know. Teach me. I, I said that wrong. What was wrong about that? Instead of defending it, how did that sound to you? If we would just humble down a minute and, and listen and not be an expert on everything, we could fix some things around here and get some things. It's like trying to tell a woman, even a gynecologist gives up on telling a woman how to have a baby. He, she, he knows all that he knows. She still knows when the baby's coming. <laughs> how do you feel right now? How do you know? You know, he, there's certain things that a woman knows that a man doesn't know. And you have to listen at her because she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. And even though it does, she doesn't speak it in our language and she says it, <laughs> it in a way. It might come out cussing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it drives us nuts. Yeah, it's the way I feel about it. It's a feeling I have about it. And I want you to give me facts. Yeah. But you don't stay married because you can talk. You stay married because you can listen. Mm. Yeah, it's so true, Bishop. Mm. Yeah, you can listen. So you 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 can listen. And 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 talking is tough because there's a difference between what I said and what you heard. And so we have to go back and forth and ask each other, now what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. And what do you mean to be, to make sure that we don't allow the enemy to get in this conversation? You know why? We need each other. Right. We, we think we're having a conversation about race, but we're really having a conversation about humanity. When that older white gentleman was pushed down in the floor and blood was coming out of his head and those police officers kept walking, if I'd have been there, I'd have crawled through their legs to try to reach him. Mm -hmm. This is not about black and white. It's about humanity. Right. It's about just human decency. Uh, that, that kind of thing we need to teach our children, both black folks and white folks, because we got black on black crime, and you're quick to point that out. Absolutely have a problem. We have a terrible problem in some of our inner cities with black on black crime, like you have white on white crime in the Appalachians where I grew up. We have it in the inner city. Here's the problem, though. When you have white on white crime, you call the police <laughs> because the police represent safety. When we have black on black crime, we can't call the police because they'll kill us, too. One of the most frightening experiences of my life as a father was to get a call a, a few months ago from my oldest son who says at midnight, Daddy, I'm in trouble. That's how he started the conversation. I thought, oh, God, what is this? My heart sunk down into my shoe. He said, I had a car wreck. He said, and it's bad, Daddy. He said, uh, the ambulance is out here. I don't know if the other person in the car lived. He, he, he was going the wrong way or something. He hit me and... And it's really, really bad. And he said, and then he said, I said, are you okay? He said, I'm okay. The cars may be total, but I'm okay. And then he said, the police are here. And when he said the police are here, panic, absolute terror rose up in me. I said, keep me on the phone. Keep me on the phone. I, I was more afraid of the police killing my son than I was afraid of the car wreck. I'm so sorry about that. It's my son. Yeah. Uh, I have no desire to end up uh, uh, sitting in a trial that I can't win mm -hmm. 
about my son. Hats off to the police officer. He was nice. He was professional. He was amazing. And the more he talked, the more relaxed I became. But the panic that I felt is what I'm talking about. The utter terror that it's midnight and my kid is out there and he's going to think he's a drug dealer because he dresses fly and he's hip and he's cool and he might have had on a hoodie, you know, and, and he's nervous and he's, he's a kid. I mean, he's a good kid, but, but a quick move and he's dead. That's how real that is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in. I was terrified till I heard the policeman's voice and I listened to what he was saying. And I told Jamar, I said, I'll come get you if you need. He said, no, I'll get an Uber and get home. I was so, I said, call me when you get home. That's what we live with every day. We live with that. No matter who you are, no matter what you have, you live with that reality that any day you could get shot. They could change the information. They can plan something on you. They can tell the story the way they did about over and over about both in John, about Arbery uh, 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 in, in, in uh, Georgia, uh, 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 about George Floyd. They changed the records. What they said happened and what happened were completely different. We, that's our reality every day. I just don't believe that it has to be that way in this country. I don't believe that we have to be seven times more likely to be incarcerated than a white man, even when we commit the same crime. I don't believe that we have to have spend more money on jails than we do on education. Mm. I don't believe that we're spending billions of dollars to incarcerate people when 70% of the people in jail are in jail for nonviolent crimes. 70%. 70% of them. I don't believe that it has to be that way. I don't believe that we have to argue about everything from, from mass to kneeling down. We, we were so offended by Colin Kaepernick kneeling down at a football game, said he was disrespecting the flag. Kneeling had nothing to do with the flag. It had everything to do with a peaceful demonstration about what we're talking about. Then when we start looting, stop looting. When we were peaceful, stop kneeling. Wait. You can't have it both ways. So a knee on the ground or a knee on the neck, which one is worse? Colin Kaepernick kneeling. I don't even watch football, but kneeling on a football field and this police officer kneeling on a boy's neck who is Dying, crying for his dead mother. His mother is dead. I still see the urine running through across the pavement on the ground where that boy was choked so bad he peed on himself and blood was on the floor and he was screaming for his mama. Mm -mm. And if we can let that go by in this country and, and not... Not, not deal with it, not just in that one case in Minneapolis, but, but nationwide where we set in a policy that nobody has to die like that again. Mm. You, you know, Medgar Evers was the turning point of the civil rights movement. Okay, and, and then, then, then there was the, the beating uh, in California that uh, I Rodney can't think of. Rodney King. Yeah, Rodney King. That, that was a wake-up call. Look at how long this has been going on. And now George Floyd. Let's let this be. 
we, it's too late to let it be the last name because we've had five more men saying, I can't breathe since George Floyd that didn't get the press and didn't get the attention. But since George Floyd is the last recognizable name, let's change some things because we need a workforce out here. We need people working out here. We need income streams out here. We need a lot of things going on out here, and that's a pool of resources that are American people, brown and black, that with better education, better training, better opportunities could help us to be to live up to our highest ideals and be the greatest nation in the world that we profess to be. You said in the back that um, somebody that can't differentiate between the good part of the movement of Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. isn't educated enough to know what they're talking about. And what I feel like we've done in this conversation, let it be part one of many, but um, is you have explained to me, and I believe our audience, that if you look at everything the platform of Black Lives Matter is, you and I can't agree with every single jot and tittle of what they're doing. And so that is helpful. That is helpful because there could have been some people in the white viewing community on this going, well, don't you understand we can't support Black Lives Matter because of all the other stuff? Well, you've just now explained that you've given permission that maybe there should be a movement that could be a conservative version of Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. which I earlier nominated you to begin. But Maybe he's um, nominating you. <laughs> you, you, you. You know something else that's funny about that? I have never seen a president that I fully agreed with, yeah. right. but I still voted. Yeah. Right. And it's funny how we can find grace when it's our agenda mm -hmm. to look over parts that we don't like and vote for what we do like. We understand it when it's our agenda. Yeah. I've never seen a president in my lifetime that I totally agree with right. about everything. Yeah. Right. Or a political party right. that suits me. I, I, I could just start my own. <laughs> I could just start my own right now because I want to cherry pick this from this part right. and this from that part. Right. And, and the way we pick depends on how we're taught. Right. Um, but you're saying don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's exactly Okay, yeah. we're nominating you for president. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what you're what you're what you're saying is to us and to our view and to this viewing audience, whoever they might be, and twenty eight to thirty five percent of the people viewing right now are African American. Much higher <laughs> much up, higher <laughs> but much higher than the national average just population count. You know, so uh, and I think that goes back to the fact that we've been knowing you for 30 years yeah. and Evie Hill before you and yeah. you know, others. And, family. And so you're part of the, you're part of the TBN family here. But, yeah. but basically, don't throw the term out. You can disagree with parts of it, mm -hmm. but don't take away the justice right. side of what this is. Yeah. Because as believers, 
we have to love justice. That's right. We have to love justice yeah. because our God represents justice yes, and we have yes. a biblical mandate. The spirit of the Lord God is upon Thank me you, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. We cannot continue to be the priest and the Levite that goes over and takes a peek mm. and then goes back into the comfort of our suburban communities and enjoy our lives. Mm. We have to prove that we are the legs and feet of Christ, the, the hands and feet of Christ, and go where the wounded are and raise them up academically, socially, intellectually, and spiritually. We have to do that. One other thing, completely off subject, but it is the substratum of something that I think that white American Christians don't understand about black American Christians. We expect more from our pastors than you do from yours. You go to your pastors to get spiritual guidance, and that's it. We go to our pastors about everything. Because from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King, that's all we had was a pastor. We never had a president. Till Obama, we never had a president. So you are expected to speak out on issues. You are expected to be a voice for the voiceless. Mm. You are expected to have a social justice component that's inherent in our community. But then let's talk about Jesus. Jesus was more associated with the downtrodden mm -hmm. than the elite. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be like Jesus, you can't just hang around with elite people. You got to be willing to be called a wine bibber. Mm. <laughs> you you got to be willing to deal with the harlot. You got to be willing to take a woman's stone and left out in the street, naked in the street, ready to be stoned. And Jesus was her advocate, mm -hmm. not the righteous. Mm. Right. He was the advocate of the guilty. If we're really going to be like Jesus and win back our own children, young, white, and brown, and black children, millennials, are walking away from faith every day because of our arrogance and our hypocrisy. They're leading this revolution. We're not out there marching. I'm not out there marching. I'm it's 63 years old, and I'm not out there marching in the middle of COVID-19 and end up on a ventilator. No, sir, I'm not doing that. I will do everything else, but I'm not doing that. Those are our kids out there marching. Right. If we're going to have their respect, we have to care about their issues because they, they're not bothered by our blackness and we're not bothered by their whiteness. And we can't let our sons be better people than we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, five minutes You're amazing. left. You're um, <laughs> so amazing. We, we have... Uh, We've gone through some stuff. Here. Yeah, we did. I, I really like this. Right him, not me. Don't <laughs> <hate> me. <laughs> I'll say that you've done most of the talking. Um, so let's let's do this. Take the last five minutes and and how do you how do you culminate this with a call to action? A little bit of balm in the Gilead there kind of stuff. How do you how do you get this going? We we ending. We need you. Okay. Some black people would disagree with me about that. I get criticism for saying this. We need you. We need you to be our brothers and sisters. We need you to care about our kids and we care about yours. We need you to examine your elected officials and if they don't come up with good answers that acknowledge our humanity, to reject them. We need you to love the born like you love the unborn. We, we, we need you in, in our lives and in our neighborhoods.
We need you to help our businesses that are struggling and dying. Uh, we, we need to be a family. When 9-11 came, it killed us all. Gay, straight, black, white, rich, poor, without discrimination. COVID-19 is the greatest evangelist we got in this country. It evangelizes everybody without discrimination. We are more discriminative than our enemies. We need to unite together as never before and come together and stop allowing little petty things and phrases to argue about to separate us from being together. Because you may be the doctor that, that, that stitches my heart back together and I may be the ambulance driver that drives you to the paramedic. We need each other right now. And I want to make an appeal uh, to, to have the people that we are paying to send to Congress and Senate represent not just the typical issues they expect us to say because they have dog whistles on us that control us. But let's, let's make them really represent what's happening right now and bring about change in the world for the betterment of people. Because if we do that, the rioters and the looters will all go away. They're, they're not rioting, rioting and looting. They would not be rioting and looting if we were not silent. Hmm. So if you want the looting and the rioting to stop, somebody has to care about those people that are around the border and they have to care about those people that are in repressed areas. And they're not all black people. They're poor white people in, in America living beneath the par uh, poverty line in Plano. In Plano. Plano, Dallas, supposedly a richest neighborhood. You'd be shocked to think it's 40% of the kids are, are hungry. We can't keep food in the pantry up there. Come out of your cubbyhole and care about the rest of the world. And when you're wrong, listen. If you do that today, if you open up and let the love of Jesus to flow out of your heart, rather than fear or intimidation, you'd be surprised how God would use your life. And so I, I call you because you're my family. Mm. I call you because I've given 43 years of my life to you to say if we ever needed you to stand up and show the love of Jesus, it's right now to calm the anger all you have to do to calm the anger is be with us you can't just watch us on TV and tell us to calm down while we die and I love you I really do and I'm praying for you and I'm asking you like Paul told Timothy come before winter we don't have long. If you're going to come, we're going to have a great country. Let's do it now. Thank you for listening to this episode of TBN's Praise Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, and consider leaving a review. We look forward to having you join us back here next week.